A trillion watts. I can't even wrap my head around a trillion. Do you guys know how big a trillion is? Yes, it's the market cap of Apple. That's true. I did some rough calculations right before we got on, and <laughs> I think you could circle the globe at the equator with a trillion solar panels. I hate those analogies. No one can, <laughs> no one can envision what wrapping the globe with anything actually is. I could wrap the globe with the old iPhones in my daughter's drawer. <laughs> so that's why Apple has the trillion dollar cap. How about 10 280-watt solar panels for every single American? That's terrible. That's like that. That's like Hillary. <laughs> I don't think people that's, can envision that's that. That's Hillary Clinton land. That's yeah. like the, the better way of saying it is something like that's that's like powering the entire United States residential sector with 100% clean energy. There you go. I promise to try a little harder to contextualize this. <laughs> the one terawatt mark for wind and solar coming up. But first, a quick word about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Speaking of solar panels, Mission Solar makes them. They make them with the highest quality standards, and they make them right here in the United States. Mission Solar operates a 200-megawatt facility in Texas, making logistics easier for developers. Mission Solar also has the highest quality standards. They have the highest PTC ratings of any North American manufacturer in the market, and they are soon going to roll out a higher-performing module later this year. So to find out more, go to missionsolar.com. That's missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. There are one trillion watts of wind and solar now installed around the world. It took a few decades to get here, but it'll only take five years or so to do it again. Now that we've reached the terawatt scale, the true acceleration begins. Then Tesla's privatization debacle. Musk claims on Twitter he has a plan to take Tesla private. Insiders say he didn't. The board says it was never notified. Securities lawyers say he's flirting with the law. A rapper claims he was on LSD. We'll explain what's going on. And we end in Germany, where a new commission is planning an end to coal in the country. Can it be a model for other industrialized countries? Catherine's over there in the Adirondack Mountains this week, as far away from industrialization as she can get. How's vacation? It's great. I've been posting obnoxiously beautiful pictures uh, out the window of my cabin. But just keep in mind, people, this is a log cabin and there are mice. Listeners might remember a couple years back when you were recording from the Adirondacks. I think you were in like the local town hall or the sheriff's office. I was in the sheriff's right? office and he kept getting calls about local things that were happening. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do because we were using a different medium and I couldn't silence it. Yeah, the, the power of editing, though, I was able to get most of those out. Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. Howdy, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? It's like been a crazy, crazy great summer. I know. It has. And I know that we promised listeners that while Catherine was on vacation, we would be doing some episodes. Uh, schedules did not permit, so we had some other content in there for you. Apologies if you were expecting some other episodes. But here we are, back together. The gang is here. And uh, this week... We're going to turn to a major landmark for the world that we hit this summer, a terawatt of wind and solar capacity, according to figures from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. It seems like we're always hitting installation and cost records, and we refrain from talking about all of them 
every week because it does get a little tedious and repetitive. We know this stuff is growing fast. We know it's coming down in cost. But this is a big deal. Uh, that's about half the entire coal capacity around the world. That's almost three times the world's nuclear capacity. And I can imagine a lot of our listeners saying, whoa, 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 don't get ahead of yourself. That comparison of capacity is super limited. We should be looking at actual energy production. And, of course, coal and nukes do dwarf wind and solar in terms of energy production. But capacity is helpful when comparing the speed of resource deployment. So the next trillion watts of wind and solar is expected to come in five years and 50% cheaper than the first. So that's pretty extraordinary. Um, Jigger, a terawatt of wind and solar capacity, what does that actually mean? How should we contextualize this? Well, you know, it's an extraordinary milestone. It's one of those things that is tough to contextualize. But I, I would say that the way that I uh, think about it is that there's roughly eight terawatts of power generation capacity in the world that is sort of reliably used on a daily basis. And so if we're at one terawatt, we're roughly 12% of all of the um, sort of everyday used power capacity, which is a pretty big deal, I think. Um, I think the other piece of this is that it it now sort of highlights that we're real. In a weird way, you know, it took us getting to sort of 12% of global sort of capacity to really, you know, get that level of respect that we probably deserved eight, nine years ago. So you think that these numbers give us respect on the world stage. Respect from who? Well, respect from regulators and politicians, right? Ultimately, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, um, the general public doesn't really matter when it comes to uh, electricity, right? There's 500 or so people that make decisions in the United States, and then there's 500 or so people that make decisions in Europe and India and China, et cetera, right? And so when you think about the regulators, the utility companies, and the developers who basically um, you know, push these projects through, those are the people that matter. And then there's a broader list of, like, re- of legislators who pass laws like renewable portfolio standards, et cetera. But it's not the whole world. It's, this is not a consumer product like you know, buying cars. So Catherine, five years, it could only take five years, maybe even less, to deploy another terawatt of wind and solar. What's it going to take to deploy that capital to get the market structures right, to get to that next level? Because that's a whole different story than the first terawatt. Yeah. And it's a different question than resource potential. So NREL has done these studies that show the potential for renewables that's just astronomical. And we are, you know, we're nowhere near where the resource is. And if you look at the way the U.S. has moved, certainly like the production tax credit for wind, the investment tax credit for solar, those were absolutely key to driving down costs and getting those first projects out the door. And then state policies came in with RPSs that Jigger mentioned. But really for the next level, I was looking to the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, and they wrote a chapter in the Global Innovation Index that said, look, if you want to really move the energy transition um, in addition to moving wind and solar where those resources are strong, you have to take a system-wide approach that goes beyond R&D, that really looks at deployment technologies working together. We need much more international cooperation, of course. We have to do advanced power system integration, which I think is another big piece of this and brings in storage and other flexible distributed resources into the mix. And then electrification and decarbonization of the end user sector. So looking at the end use side is going to be really important. And I think on the NDU side, of course, you're going to find more resources to bring to bear 
to the generation side. So I think it's really exciting when we consider the challenges for deploying the next terawatt or a couple of terawatts of wind and solar. The big question is how cheap you need these resources to get so that they can continue to uh, you know, make money at the project level when you have super saturated wind and solar grids. What kind of storage technologies we need, either longer hour duration storage or diurnal storage to support uh, super saturated wind and solar grids. And there's a real debate going on about like where costs and supporting technologies need to be to get renewables to the next level because what got us here is not going to get us to the next uh, the next level of scale. I'm curious about what you guys think about those challenges and you know where costs need to be in particular. You know, natural gas combined cycle power plants do not have to reach two cents a kilowatt hour to be relevant. Neither do coal plants or nuclear plants or any other plant, right? So why would we frame renewables for the next terawatt in terms of cost? You would always frame it in terms of value. And the value of clean renewable energy with economic development in every country around the world far exceeds the cost of renewable energy today because of the cost reduction of wind and solar. So you've got countries like Brazil, India, China, no longer asking for global subsidies from, you know, these sort of $100 billion funds that they asked for in the 2009 Copenhagen negotiations and instead are saying, this is a way for us to actually stop importing coal or importing natural gas or importing fuels that we don't have locally. In fact, this is a national security issue for us, and we have the ability to use our God-given resources to power our own country. Yeah, and I think it's really important to keep the word value in mind, as Jigger said, because this is where regulators come in. Our regulatory construct right now says, all right, for utilities, they always bid out basically for natural gas. When they write an RFP, it is for a natural gas facility. If we were able to have all source RFPs and say, bring your resources, whatever they may be, and let's figure out what we need on the grid, not just what's cheapest, but what will give us more reliable, resilient, whatever those other characteristics and metrics that you want to use, those all become part of the values and benefits and aren't just takers, but those are givers. So you have to think about this from a regulatory construct too, because if we don't change that, you're going to continue to have utilities invest in traditional assets rather than shifting to not just more cost-effective, but more useful assets. Yeah, and I think that when you think about this more broadly, um, you know, we had about 100 gigawatts of solar deployed last year. Let's call it, you know, the same for wind, just to make the math easy. And so we've got 200 gigawatts a year that are going out the door every year, and that gets you to one terawatt in five years. The vast majority of that is going to come outside of Europe and the United States, right? So when you look at India... India has only so much hard currency, right? When they have U.S. dollars that come in from their exports, they have to use that those U.S. dollars to import diesel, import natural gas from Iran via Pakistan, right? Import coal from Mozambique, from Indonesia, from Australia. They do not want to spend their hard U.S. currency on those fuels. They would much prefer to spend that currency on mechanical implements that makes their manufacturing facilities more 
uh, productive and more efficient, right? AI or machines or robots or other things that make their citizens more productive. And so, like, what is that worth? It could be worth 10 cents a kilowatt hour to pay for solar in order to be able to shift those U.S. dollars to things that are far more productive for the GDP of India. And interestingly, like around the same time that this BNEF report came out, Environment America put out a report called Renewables on the Rise about U.S. figures. And those are are also stark. So the U.S. produces six times as much renewable electricity as it did in 2008 when Obama came into office and uh, was elected into office. And there are now nine states that get more than 20 percent of their electricity from renewables. Uh, the U.S. is generating 39 times more solar than it did a decade ago. And um, we went from 0.05% of electricity to 2% of the electricity mix in uh, the last decade. And we're probably going to see that double within the next five years or so. I mean, the numbers go on and on and on. And so we're seeing this in you know, nearly every major market. Yeah, I think one thing we have to keep in mind, though, is that there are going to be some stumbling blocks if we're not careful and we start, don't start kind of periscoping a little bit. One is PURPA, which uh, we've talked about a lot, which is you know the ability for third parties to compete against a monopoly utility. And a lot of PURPA, the assumptions that have gone into that are based on old numbers, old metrics, as Jigger was talking about, bad assumptions, assumptions that no longer hold true. And so I think that there are some things that are going to need to be adjusted, whether it's on the federal level or on the state level, um, because, yeah, we will have continue to have RPSs, we'll continue to have greenhouse gas standards, CO2 targets in, in certain states. But I think there are other things that structurally need to change for the business model of utilities um, for us to be able to really grow. The other thing that I'm really focused on is, is you know, just being a big, big part of industry more broadly. I think that the beauty of where renewable energy is now is that we're actually large enough to be able to move the needle on diversity issues and gender equality issues and environmental justice issues. And I mean, this new opportunity zone legislation that came out of the Trump tax credit, you know, it's the renewable energy industry that's leading the charge on opportunity zones. And so I just think when you think about where we are today, we actually are large enough to be able to take responsibility for broader, um, you know, social concerns and labor concerns like we weren't able to in the past. Let's take a quick minute to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Mission Solar is a proud employer of American workers. They are workers in office jobs, engineering, module assembly. Mission Solar operates a 200 megawatt solar manufacturing facility right here in the United States in Texas. So that central location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers. So that keeps projects moving and on schedule. And consumers, you get a higher performing module. So if you want American-made modules, you want the best modules on the market, turn to Mission Solar. Mission Solar is going to be introducing a higher output module in Q3 to Q4 2018, and you can find out more at missionsolar.com slash products. That's missionsolar.com slash products. Let's go on over to Tesla now. Oh boy, what a weird situation over there in Muskland. Last week, Musk tweeted out some extraordinary news. He said he had funding secured for a privatization deal. He was going to buy 
stockholders out at $420 per share and take the company private. Trading eventually halted. Everyone waited for the details, and they never came. Behind the scenes, according to reporting from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, the board was scrambling. What in the hell was Elon talking about? We have since learned that he never really had a plan, that he met with the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, discussed taking the company private on multiple occasions, uh, according to Musk, and then he went to Twitter and claimed he had a deal. So as of this recording, the Saudis still haven't commented. Um, you know, either way, they haven't said that they are working on a deal or aren't. Uh, Musk says he now has banks involved with this transaction or proposed transaction. The SEC actually issued a subpoena on Wednesday over Musk's Twitter claim that he had funding secured. Uh, it probably won't amount to much, probably a slap on the wrist because it's hard to prove intent, but still significant that federal regulators are now taking notice. So what? how do we get into this mess? Catherine, Musk's version of events seems to be different from the board's version of events, at least according to the reporting that we've seen. Uh, what have we learned about how Musk's tweeting shook up the company? Yeah, I think there are different investors that are having different reactions to this. So there are all these insiders, uh, about 25.3% of the shareholders are Tesla insiders. And so, you know, they're really, uh, you know, they've always been on pretty much on Elon's side. I think some of those folks are really questioning it. Um, it's creating so much uncertainty in the company from a from a public company. And after his tweeting, he wrote this blog post that was supposed to clarify things a little bit. Um, and he said things like, you know, my tweeting, I needed to tweet because I, there are so many people who have stock that I needed to tell everybody at once. You know, you have to, you have to, when you're taking a big decision, uh, discuss with your board. If you're a public company, there are all kinds of rules and regulations around that. And that's what I think the SEC is trying to get to. But they're required to have a number of regulatory approvals. And he kept using that phrase, we will comply with the required regulatory approvals in his blog post. But that still didn't take away from the fact that he said things that really were were not firm yet. He said that that he was working with companies like Silver Lake um, that said, no, we're not. This is not some... So uh, some of it seemed like, I don't know if it's wishful thinking on his part or ideas that he had that he wanted to get out there. He claimed that he is speaking for myself as a potential bidder rather than for Tesla, which is a little bit like having it both ways. So uh, it's it's very confusing the way this is going down. But I would imagine behind closed doors, the investors are asking him a lot. The big inside investors are asking him a lot of hard questions. Yeah. What an idiotic move. I mean, you can see him backpedaling in this blog post that he wrote days later where, like, you know, the board had to come together and come up with this story with Elon. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think many people doubt the details that he met with the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. You know, they, they own 5% of the company already, uh, that there was probably some movement toward a deal. But the fact that he came out on Twitter without talking to his board, without talking to major investors and said that he had funding secured is... Um, why this caught everyone's eye and why it caused such an uproar. Jigger, give us some more detail on how these things are supposed to happen. There is a there's a playbook for this stuff. Yeah, well there is a playbook for this stuff and largely it's around fiduciary responsibility. So, you know, when you actually have an unsolicited offer or you go out and solicit an offer and you talk to somebody and you come up with some sort of sketch of a deal, there's generally an investment bank that's hired 
law firms that are hired. There's usually an auction process that is authorized by the board because you want to make sure that that other bidders are allowed to offer a higher price for the company. Um, and, you know, and then you decide based on all the bids that come in, you know, which ones you choose. And then you, you know, get all the legal work done. And then you actually put out a press release, right, at the same time. And, and in that press release, you actually name who the investors are and, and who the strategics are and what the new board makeup might look like. Um, that, like there's just so many details here. And I'm of two minds, right? So I like the way that Musk um, sort of just does what he wants to do. I, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who is as fixed in orthodoxy as other people are. I think that the part that confuses me is I think that Elon himself doesn't understand what, like, what he's gotten himself into. So when you think about what Elon wants, right, he sort of hates the public company thing, right? So he hates the quarterly um, calls. But more importantly, he just hates the fact that analysts can write whatever they want about the stock and and not like have to face retribution if they're wrong or whatnot, and people can short the stock. He feels like that's people who are officially betting against him, right? And the thing is, is that if Elon wanted to find the most perfect investors, he would be publicly traded. That's what he has, right? Think about all the people who have been his biggest backers the entire time, people who really shouldn't probably be owning this stock um, so fervently because, you know, he's lost a lot of money. They've had quality issues. They've had other issues, et cetera. But like, but they just love it. And they bid up this stock to their, to the point they're a $60 billion company and they're worth more than BMW and worth more than GM and Ford and all these other things. He has self-selected his investors. They're called retail investors who love him. So why is he wanting to abandon them all just to like, you know, get out from underneath quarterly reporting. He wants to control the narrative, I think. But what narrative? Like, I don't understand. He still needs to go pitch people for money. Like, until you make money, you need money from outside sources. So even if he's private, he has to go pitch to somebody who has to write a check. Well, the ratio of stockholders to shorts is extremely high. And there are a lot of people gunning for this company. And so, you know, most people who write about the company or are targeting Tesla in some way to either pump up the stock or to bring the company down. And he's stuck in the middle. And if he's a if he's running a private company, he doesn't have to worry about any of that. You know, he can truly control the narrative. Right. But he's only stuck in the middle if his capital markets capability is stuck. Right. I mean, stuck in the middle means that the short interest is so high that, in fact, it's like just not possible for you to go out and raise money. But that is not true for Tesla. It is super easy for them to raise money. In fact, they just did a huge fundraise last year. It's Elon that is saying, I don't want to raise money right now. I think we can make it through with the money we have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, they don't have a problem raising money. So it's actually just personal. Elon is a reality television show star here, and he just hates what people said about him on Twitter. And you're like, like, shut up. Like, that's how all CEOs work. There are a lot of detractors. There are a lot of shorts. You just ignore them, keep executing, and you prove them wrong. Well, this has been, from the reporting that I've read, some really great reporting in the Times and the Journal, um, a real debacle for 
Tesla because they've they've had to scramble to keep up with Elon's exploits on Twitter. He's it's gotten worse and worse. He can hardly contain himself. And when you are um, CEO of a company this highly capitalized, you you can't you just can't be making decisions like this in the public eye on Twitter. Like he, he just can't act like he's acting, particularly with so much on the line. And it sounds like the board is really, really pissed. Yeah. But what does that mean? Is the board going to fire him? No. no, I mean, Elon, so then who the Tesla hell cares? <laughs> no, but then who cares? Well, what I'm well, saying is it matters when you think for corporate about, governance, right? It, it matters. What does that mean? Corporate it, governance well, means that when you step are, out of bounds, you get fired. Right. But companies are people, right? Companies are, are they're just it's all about the people. And so this is this is about management of a company with a lot at stake. And so the drama is real and it's high. And that's why we're all fascinated with it. So it does matter. I have no sympathy for the board at all. Sorry, go ahead, Catherine. Oh, I was just going to build on Jigger's argument that there there are investors like the California State Teachers Retirement System that owns about 280,000 shares of stock, and they were given no heads up at all. They had no idea. They weren't informed before the tweet happened. They have no, no idea what's going on. It's investors like those that have really taken a big position, and part of it is, Stephen, because they believe in Elon and believe in what he wants to get done. Um, but the trust me, it'll work. Trust me, we'll get the cars off the line. It's all going to be great. You know, that's that is not um, you know the way public companies have to work. Yeah, I look, I think that there is a cult of personality and you see this with Jack Dorsey and Twitter. You see this with KR with Bloom Energy. I mean, he has super majority voting rights and to make all the decisions he wants at Bloom. Right. You see this with Mark Zuckerberg and all of the abuse he is imposing on all of his users at Facebook that Sheryl Sandberg can't stop him from doing. Right. You see this with a lot of these imperial CEOs and you get what you, you signed up for. Right. I mean, if you're a board member at Tesla, you know that you're dealing with dysfunction, but you do it because he made you 180x or 1000x on your investment. Right. As a venture capitalist. And he made your your venture capital firm. Right. In the case of like, you know, DBL or a few of the other folks. Right. It's the same thing is true with Ontario teachers or some of these other pension funds who might own the stock. They bought the stock at like 100 bucks. Now it's trading for a lot more. They're doing fantastically well. And you deal with it by having the crazy on the other side. Right. Do I think Elon needs a number two that he respects? Yes. But he doesn't have one. And so it is what it is. But like, you know, the thing is, is that right now you either sell the stock or if you're the board and you feel wronged in the situation, you do your freaking job and you fire Elon. Yeah, there's no way they're going to fire Elon unless there are greater so then, legal ramifications, which I I don't think there are. Like I said at the top of the segment, it's very hard to prove intent unless there's really clear documentation. And um, given that Elon likely kind of he does this stuff on a whim. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, and a lot of others are guessing, that's going to be hard to to prove his intent. Was he trying to drive the stock price up to screw over short sellers? Uh, what was he doing here? If there is documentation of an of explicit intent, then they have more legal troubles on their hand. And then you know, there's there's a greater question about what happens to Elon. But right now, I can't imagine anything happening. Yeah, the bigger problem with all of this is honestly that he's not creating software like Facebook. He's creating a physical 
unit like a car that has to last for 10 years. And my sense is, is that if there's this much chaos in his Twitter feed, there's equal amount of chaos in the factory. And my sense is the, the, the processes around quality control and quality assurance and all these other pieces are probably equally chaotic. And that's what troubles me the most, right? Is it when you're in the business of making stuff like fuel cells or electric vehicles or other things, it just matters that you do things by the book. It really matters. Oh yeah, and those all those tweets by Martin Tripp, who had uh, who had doc, who supposedly documented issues with the Model Three and sent out VIN numbers on Twitter, and um, that is not helpful to the cause. No, and the the company has actually sued Martin Tripp. He's countersued. Um, there's there was another whistleblower who came out and made similar claims about quality control. Um, there have been a number of whistleblowers who've come out and said that there are significant safety problems at Tesla's factories. The company's hitting back really hard, but it feels like their back is up against the wall right now. There's so much flying at the company. And, you know, Elon is on the precipice of getting 5,000 cars out a week. He's got to do it with the highest quality standards and safety standards. He's got to prove to investors that he can hit this target. And he's on Twitter you know, making claims that potentially get him into legal trouble. So someone get him off that platform. So, so <laughs> if, if, if I had one piece of advice for Elon, it would be stop dropping the LSD <laughs> and start focusing on running the company. Or just keep dropping LSD and get off of Twitter. <laughs> keep it at a micro dose, Elon. Keep it at a micro dose. Okay, so our last story complements the first. It is all about Germany's coal phase out. We all know that Germany has a uniquely complicated relationship with coal. The country has exploded its use of wind and solar, was a pioneer, but it hasn't been able to tackle coal in a serious way. And that is a serious problem for European climate targets. So Germany put together this commission to figure out how to phase out the resource and how to support workers and communities who still depend on coal. Justin Gway of the Climate Works Foundation, who is a dear friend of the podcast, called this the biggest story no one is talking about in an interview with our writer, Justin Gerdes. The Coal Commission is big news in Germany, but hardly anyone knows about it outside of the U.S. But it's it's actually, you know, it could represent a model for other industrialized countries that are trying to think about the future of the resource under the Paris climate framework. So, Catherine, why is this commission a big story? Yeah, so the commission is not called the Commission on Shutting Down Coal. It's called the Commission on Growth, Structural Change, and Employment. And as you say, they're very focused on jobs and making sure that they prioritize job transition over environmental issues, although, of course, the outcome will be better environmental outcomes. So the task force, by the end of this year, has to come up with a plan to eliminate with dates certain on when they will eliminate coal. And they have, the jobs are not huge in coal. They have, you know, compared to 340,000 jobs in renewables that they have, it's about a third of their electricity, and it's about 20,000 jobs in lignite and 12,000 jobs in hard coal. Some you know, some thousands of jobs in related sectors. Um, but they're not a, it's not a huge amount of jobs, but that's what they're focused on because they want to make sure that the regions, the Brandenburg and, um, Rhineland regions are really focused on transition and, 
and that's what I'm hearing from folks in Germany is that there are not that many jobs at stake, but the transition is real and that's already happening. So that is a big deal. And, and by doing this, this will then put pressure on Eastern European states like Poland and Czech Republic to also act on shutting down coal. So this is all about employment then? Well, yes. <laughs> and the narrative is about employment. But because the employment is not, you know, they could shut down all the plants tomorrow and it wouldn't affect that many jobs. But the issue is much bigger than that. The issue is really political. Yeah. And and these discussions always are political. And it brings us to this big question about why coal jobs are singled out in the way they are. And I, I you know, of course, everyone's job is important. Um, we don't want to discount people's livelihoods and the communities that have been built around coal. But the numbers tell a, a very different story. You know, 30,000, 40,000 coal workers in Germany, over 300,000 renewable energy workers in Germany. When the Merkel government issued policy changes over the last few years, 20,000 jobs in renewable energy were lost. But nobody is setting up a special commission to help those workers. And we have this different standard for coal that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. You know, I understand that we have such a deep history with with coal and that it was such an important role in, um, you know, during World War II in Germany and helping industrialize uh, developed countries. And so we have this very rich history. But the, the it's the same thing in the United States. You know, we have a fraction of the workers in coal that we have in renewable energy, but yet they have a stranglehold on the politics. And yet, so here's the thing. Uh, President Trump would not lose his job if those solar jobs were lost. However, Angela Merkel, I don't know if you remember, but it took a long time for her to have her coalition where she could properly govern. And that coalition relies on the Social Democrats. The Social Democrats are heavily populated in those coal regions. And so she has to keep those folks on board. This is all about politics. So she will probably retire after this, uh, after her term, but she is really grooming the economic minister, Peter Altmaier, who will then be the next person in the CDU, which is the Christian Democratic Union Party. And this and and Altmaier is being very, very careful. He does not want to make any mistakes. He doesn't want to break up this coalition with social Democrats, which is why the commission consists of trade unions, employers, people who live in those coal regions, and, and also scientists and environmentalists. I mean, they have a, a whole host of people making up those 31. But it is very, very important to them to hold that coalition together. And that coalition, the Social Democrats have such a hold on it because of the coal region. Well, and this is the and this is the whole sort of politics angle that I think people just miss in our industry, which is that you know, when you think about the politics of Germany, it's a lot like the politics of let's call it Michigan, right? Where, you know, like if you were to think that Michigan was going to rival California as the clean energy hub of this country, with Michigan's amount of solar radiation and Michigan's amount of wind energy potential and Michigan's sort of know-how and expertise, right? They're clearly extraordinary in manufacturing and extraordinary in workers training and all these other things and innovation, but they don't have the best solar radiation. They don't have the best wind profiles, but 
They just want to do a lot of clean energy, right? You can imagine the fights that would erupt in Michigan around why are we spending this much money on clean energy and why are we leading this transition, etc. That's Germany in a nutshell, right? It's 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 this weird hybrid of basically an industrialized power that happened to have a few politicians 18 years ago who said, we should do a lot of this feed-in tariff stuff. And they just kept going and kept going and kept going, not because they're green, but just because they just really thought that human ingenuity and innovation and potential could win out over carbon. Well, I do think there is a green element to this. I mean, the Germans have environmental protection built into politics and you know their social construct more than I think a lot of Americans do. Um, but there's this weird dynamic, right? So, so the Germans said that they wanted to phase out nuclear, and of course there was a strong debate, but it doesn't have nearly the impact as making a decision to phase out coal, right? I mean, Angela Merkel's uh, Angela Merkel's grip on power is not threatened necessarily by the decision to phase out nuclear. It may be with the decision to phase out coal if they go about it the wrong way. So there's something about coal that's different than other resources. The same thing in the United States. There's no nuclear constituency, but there's a major coal constituency, even though there's, a, again, a fraction of the jobs in coal as there isn't any other resource. So there's just something there's just something strange about this resource that influences politics in a very unique way. It's just time. Right. I mean, the the entire nuclear revolution in this country and around the world really happened in the 70s. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, I was alive in the 70s. And so it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. Coal started having their impact in the 1800s. Right. I mean, I just think that it's been around for so long. Right. I mean, it's ingrained in the politics. I mean, people have made trades. There's probably been marriages of convenience that occurred between coal families to like, you know, <laughs> to bring together the coal alliance. I mean, that that stuff happened, right? Coal was a strategic differentiator between folks who won wars and folks who lost wars, right? So like, yeah. I, I just think that nuclear has never been, nuclear weapons certainly has been, but not nuclear civilian power has not been that differentiator like that. Yeah, as Marianne Hitt from this year club says, the the industrial age was built on the back of the cold workers. And I think that's something that we always have to keep in mind. But I also think that while it may, this report may end up having some kind of a compromise that nobody's going to be super happy with, but maybe that they would get out of brown coal by 2030 and uh, other coal by 2035. So it wouldn't look like it was on a very quick trajectory. Um, a friend that I talked to this week said, look, if you drive south of Berlin, which is in a lot of the, which is in the Brandenburg region, very much coal country. He said, you see jobs in IT and engineering, not in coal. And he said, the transition's already happening. So if we can, if this commission comes up with something that provides some sort of pathway for those people in, in those regions that are very coal-based in Germany, it may happen a lot faster organically. Let's wrap up the show. Give our listeners a free electron. What do we got? What do we got? Catherine, give us your story this week from the Adirondacks. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm waiting. I'm very interested in what's going to happen with the EPA plan that's going to roll out any day. There have been some leaked uh, pieces from the, you know, reversing the Obama climate climate rule on greenhouse gases, the Clean Power Plan. So I'm kind of Wait waiting. Wait a second. You haven't stopped working, have you? 
Uh, not totally, <laughs> but in the meantime, I am able to catch up on blogs and reports that I, I don't always get to see. And um, we don't always talk about energy efficiency, although I know we're all big fans of it. So the American Council on an Energy Efficient Economy has a sister organization in India called the Alliance for an Energy Efficient Economy. And they just put out a report. And, and India is like the 15th out of 25 economies in energy efficiency on this, on this energy efficiency index. But this report really singled out all of the states in India from a variety of sectors, buildings, industry, municipalities, transport, ag, and really looked at how are the different states in India doing. And I think it's really important for, you know, India is huge. They are growing in leaps and bounds in renewables, but energy efficiency is going to be critical to them as well. So I was really glad to see them putting together this report and uh, with a baseline for all these different states. Yeah. And of course, efficiency has a much greater impact in these rapidly growing countries. Jigger, what's your free electron? Well, as you know, our brothers and sisters in California have been uh, ravaged by fires the last few years. And, um, you know, the, there's this looming story out there around uh, PG&E's role in um, some of the fires uh, just because of, you know, maintenance protocols and whether they were followed and whether brush that were too close to substations actually, you know, um, lit on fire. And, um, you know, and I think the, the CEO of PG&E is now saying it's not their fault. They should be protected from, you know, these kinds of uh, liabilities uh, because of climate change and because climate change is so rampant that this is going to keep happening and there's really nothing they can do about it. Um, I, you know, I just think that the way this is going to play out is going to be so Interesting. I mean, PG&E, as you know, has had a lot of missteps the last five years with, you know, the explosion in San Bruno and then another explosion in San Francisco and other liabilities where they're paying out billions of dollars of penalties to these folks. Um, their stock has taken a huge hit. And there's a lot of folks now, you know, talking about, you know, PG&E going through structured bankruptcy again to figure out um, how to get out from underneath these liabilities. Yeah, this probably warrants a greater discussion on the fires uh, and on PG&E itself. It's an example of the the you know the the threats of climate change as well. We can't say that climate change causes these fires, but it makes them more intense. It makes them more likely, and it has a direct impact on energy infrastructure. We're seeing that play out in California right now, and seriously threatening the financial health of PG&E. I have been really enjoying these these uh, questions that I'm throwing at you too. And I, I don't have a, a particular story in my free electron. It's more a behavior change. I have been using Twitter, well, any all social media less and less. There's just this steady erosion of trust and enjoyment on these platforms. I don't get a lot of joy out of them. You know, the, the, the way these, these platforms have been hijacked for political purposes for national security threats, the way that these companies are run into the ground and allow the worst elements of society to fester just turns me off so much. And I'm not really using, you know, Twitter that much. I, I do get nuggets of joy from energy Twitter and podcast Twitter. So I monitor a lot of folks still and get some great insights and, and um, story ideas, but I just can't, bring myself to use them. And meanwhile, you have people like Elon Musk, who, 
you know, just is creating a disaster for his company on Twitter, proving once again what a dangerous tool it can be. And I'm curious where you two are in your use of social media and whether that's changed at all, given like the last couple of years of revelations. So my happy place is Instagram instead, because I can follow like the Arlington Animal Welfare League and look at pictures of cute puppies and kittens. Um, So that brings me joy. And I also try to follow nice people on Twitter. There are really good people. They're good. There's good reporting. Uh, I try to stay away from the trolls and try to be really careful who I pick and choose to follow, which means I don't have as many followers as you do, Stephen. But, um, you know, I, I don't think of it as horrible because I don't I don't go into the deep dives and get into these fights with like Michael Liebreich and all those guys. <laughs> I try to stay away from all that. Yeah. I mean, I use LinkedIn more just because I think it's a better platform for learning than Twitter. But um, um, but I, I do I do think that in general, it is a good thing to for people like myself, at least, who, you know, goes out there and puts himself out there um, to be able to have a tough skin and, you know, take the hits in the same way that I, you know, dish it out, just because I think that that's how things move forward. And the alternative is for me to go back to the fax machine or <laughs> snail mail, which I don't think is actually going to work. So, um, yeah, I think that they have their uses. And I you know, try to make sure that I understand that none of it's real and that, you know, it's an exchange of ideas and it's free speech, but it's not, um, you know, intended to, you know, be that personal. Yeah, I've had to set some rules for myself. Um, I just don't look at Twitter as often. I mean, I have to use Twitter as a journalist. I think all three of us have to use it to get intel on what we follow. So it is a an absolute necessity for me and for all of us because of the way we get our information and the, the folks in our ecosystem, how they push out that information. But I've cut back w- way back because I feel like a lot of that information is pushed out in a very negative way. So there, Catherine, you're absolutely right. There are some extraordinary people who are very positive or sending out really interesting stories. But there's something about the pithiness of Twitter that pushes us into more sarcastic, hard-headed versions of ourselves. And I was finding myself becoming that person. So I set a rule for myself and said, okay, pretty much all the stuff I'm going to tweet out is going to be supportive. It's going to be, you know, something exciting or interesting and positive. And I'm going to stop, like, mocking people and, you know, sending out these pithy comments and about someone that I disagree with. And that's actually helped me a lot. Um, my next order of business is to stop sending out updates while on an acid trip. <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth in, you know, the dark side and the, the Jedi light in Star Wars, right? I mean, it's like all of us have both sides and you just have to resist the temptation to go to the other side. It is the amount of energy and like just sort of enthusiasm on the negative side of the force is just much higher than the positive side of the force. Totally. So that's a good challenge for all our listeners, right? If you're finding yourself exhausted or sending out too much negativity in the world, try to set a rule for yourself and only tweet out positive stuff. I certainly don't want to tell people how to use the platform, but I think it goes a long way toward improving mental health, at least for me. And while you're at it, send out a link to this podcast 
tell people why you listen. Comment on the stories that we cover. We don't mind some negative comments either. We, we like to hear the feedback, whatever it is. So we just appreciate the responses. Follow the Energy Gang and the three of us on Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your shows. Keep with us next time with Jigger Shaw and Katherine Hamilton. I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Thanks for listening. Thank you.